electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Tonight on this CNBC special hour, stocks still closing lower today despite staging a massive rally off the lows of the day. And tech, once a safe haven in volatility, now this year's biggest lagger. The Nasdaq losing ground more than the Dow in the S&P in 2022. So far, at least, tonight we're drilling down on the moves and all the fallout. Ahead, you're going to hear from one well-known analyst who spotted buying opportunities despite the carnage. Plus, Jim Cramer, he gives his take on whether the recent tech wreck looks like another dot-com bubble bursting and a Silicon Valley insider who says 2022 just already too risky for his taste. Welcome, everyone, to this CNBC special Tech Shock. I'm Frank Holland. Jim Cramer, of course, is off tonight. But let's get right down to it. Our Mike Santoli starts us off tonight to break down the recent volatility. Mike? Yeah, Frank, it's really been all about payback for the Nasdaq and for technology more broadly so far this year after an amazing run. And that's visible here in the three-year chart of the Nasdaq composite. We've bounced just slightly off of this down 21 percent number. That's what we have, 21 percent decline off of the high from July 3rd. You also always go back in time as well as down in price. I always say that you basically wiped out a year's worth of upside. Yet even with this decline, the Nasdaq is up almost 80 percent over the past three years. So it shows you that basically overshot to the upside valuations, the silver lining here, earnings forecasts for NASDAQ as a whole, even for the broad stock market, are not really going down. It's all about how much investors are willing to pay for it. So implicitly, the NASDAQ has become somewhat less expensive. Now, within technology, take a look at how Apple compares to semiconductors and software. When you put all these things together, it's basically 80% of the entire tech sector is, is Apple plus those two subsectors. And what you'll see is Apple really holding up better than those other ETFs. And really what it is is investors are going toward the assets where they have the most visible good business fundamentals as opposed to all their value being the future software is where people uh, are all about the future. Finally, social media and cloud. Two of the hardest hit areas, two of the areas where it was all about lots of IPOs, lots of young companies, and lots of pulling forward of business during the pandemic, and now growth slowing in users. And they've run right in sync with one another, Frank. All right, Mike, thanks for that insight. Now, from oil to the Fed, the macro backdrop of the markets is getting more difficult to make sense of. So is there opportunity still ahead to be had, specifically in some of those beaten down tech names? Let's bring in Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities and Katie Stockton, founder of Fairlead Strategies, to get their take on the space. Thank you both for being here. 
Great to, to be, be here. here. So, Katie, let's begin with you. Uh, you actually believe the support level for the Nasdaq is at 13, excuse me, the Nasdaq 100 at 13,200. Today closed at 13,500. Do the technical signs here show that we're going to see more pain in the days ahead? Well, it's right there. So essentially, we're, we're seeing support levels tested by the major indices, both the NASDAQ 100 and also the S&P 500 around 4,200. So it's essential that we see some kind of relief rally that leaves those support levels intact, or else we're looking at what could be a more prolonged bear trend. As it stands, I'm still calling this a corrective phase or correction within the long-term uptrend, but nobody could argue against the fact that we've seen a very distinct loss of long-term upside momentum. Now, with that, we believe that we're probably in a trading range environment for this year. And what will be more important in that environment is to try to identify short-term and intermediate-term lows. And there are some indications that the NASDAQ 100, led by that downside leadership behind technology, is deeply oversold both in absolute and relative terms and should see a nice intermediate-term low established in here. Dan, turn over to you. You actually just published a note a short time ago saying that you believe that tech is oversold due to the Russian invasion and that you believe that cybersecurity and mega cap tech names are where to be. You actually list a few, Microsoft, Apple, Adobe, Salesforce, and Oracle, which was down after a miss on EPS, is now back up after the call. Africast must have said something that made investors a bit happier. Um, if you look since February 24th, all those stocks but Apple are underperforming the S&P. What factors besides Apple, of course, do you think help those stocks avoid the panic selling? Look, I think it's as oversold as I've seen tech in the last five to six years relative to growth. Because you, when you look at cloud cybersecurity, it's two to three X the amount of growth over the next two years. And we've seen the last decade. And I think a lot of these names, I think it's a, it's a basket approach. You look at names like Microsoft, Oracle, Adobe, you know, among others. So I believe cloud, it's a transformation that's happened. That trillion dollars is still going to be spent, which is why we love Cloud is a core basket here. But then you look at cybersecurity. That's one I really circle because if you look at the broader trends, 25% growth we're seeing in cybersecurity. We've seen even in the last few weeks the cyber warfare taking hold given the Ukraine situation. And that's names like Palo Alto, Zscale, or CyberArk. We've saw the Mandian acquisition by Google. And that's just tip of the iceberg in terms of broader M&A in cyber. So, Dan, do you believe that M&A is a catalyst for these cyber names or is it simply the, the threat of Russia, uh, the Ukraine invasion and the thought or the specter, at least, of, of wider spread cyber threats? That's a great question. I think, first off, fundamentally, I think these stocks could go up 30, 40 percent from where we are today because of the growth. And we're hearing from CISOs, we're hearing from the Beltway, more and more growth, which is a pocket of strength relative to tech. So fundamentally, that's why you own these names, the basket that we've talked about. But then you look at M&A, I think the Google Mandian, that's just a shot across the bow at Microsoft, at Amazon, at Oracle. They're going to have to double down on cybersecurity to protect the cloud in this just massive stage of cyber warfare that we're seeing. That's not going away in terms of just the overall trends, which is why we love this as a pocket, along with cloud and then our favorite Apple uh, in terms of ways to play this white knuckle tape. I think everybody knows the pandemic. It really helped out tech stocks. A lot of people are actually comparing this period to the dot-com bubble, including our own Jim Cramer. Here's his thoughts. Not in a 2000-2001 era for the profitable companies that make things and can return capital. We are in a 2000-2001 
for the companies that came public it, between 2020 and then the beginning of this year. So let's distinguish the two and proceed accordingly. I'm pretty sure that was Jimmy Chill. You seem pretty chill right there. Um, Katie, I'm going to turn back to you. What do the technical indicators say? Can you compare this to the dot-com bubble burst this period of time? Are there technical indicators that make them either similar or very different? You know, it's similar in that that same loss of long-term upside momentum, but it's it wasn't quite as parabolic, the up move that we saw in the NASDAQ benchmark. So I don't really feel like it's a fair comparison. I'm actually making the comparison more uh, closely to 2018. We came in strong to that year, saw a big corrective phase at the start of the year, had a nice mid-year rebound that even took the S&P 500 to an incremental new high, and then, of course, saw another 20% downdraft into the Q4 of 2018. 2018. That to me is, is a more fair comp of what we're seeing now from a technical perspective. And to the point on the technology sector, I do think also that there's opportunity here in the mega cap complex. So Apple and Google, Microsoft, even NVIDIA, and so sort of the periphery of those mega cap names. I do think that these oversold readings and the proximity of support do make them compelling. And then if you dig deeper in the small and mid cap names and where there's higher growth and also higher risk, of course, you are also seeing some incremental improvement on those charts, and that applies to the cybersecurity names, names like Okta or Splunk. These names are coming off their lows. And when you say 30 to 40 percent upside, it seems actually very doable, as, as crazy as it feels to say, when you just simply look at things like the 50-day moving averages on those charts. In some cases, they're 15, 25 percent above current levels. It just goes to show how beaten up these names are. Dan, we have time for just one more question. I want to look way ahead, if you don't mind, to Fang Earnings, um, Amazon, Microsoft, a whole bunch of other big names the last week of April, the first week of May. Is that a catalyst to potentially turn the Nasdaq around? I mean, I think the street's massively underestimating the growth that we're seeing. It's obviously just a, a brutal geopolitical environment in terms of what we're seeing. But I believe going into earnings, a major catalyst for tech, we're going to look back in this and viewed as the most oversold we've seen tech in the last four to five years. With that being a catalyst, given the fundamentals and the transformation to the cloud, that's the key along with cybersecurity. All right, Dan Ives and Katie Stockton, we appreciate the insight. Thank you both. All right, after a stellar run in 2020, the IPO market turning highly negative in recent months. We've seen 16 IPOs this year compared to the 60 that we saw at the same time last year. Of those 16, half, almost half, are trading below their IPO price. So when we see some light at the end of that tunnel, Kathleen Smith, co-founder of Renaissance Capital, she joins us now. So, Kathleen, it sounds like we're definitely in the tunnel right now. But you do say that there's some light. How far down the tunnel are we and where does the light come from? It is a little hard to determine the timing, but we can look at a few things. I mean, the IPO market had such a stellar 2020. Our Renaissance IPO index was up over 100 percent. And then in mid-21... We had the Fed talking about tightening and also now the war in Ukraine. So returns on IPOs have suffered. Of the 400 IPOs that were priced last year, 80% are trading below their IPO price. So the days of entrepreneurs getting showered with capital are over. The IPO market has basically shut down for new issuance and um, It's been about a month and we have not seen any IPOs. 
we have to look back at some other times like this to get read the tea leaves on how we come out of this. For example, some of the worst, I guess two of the worst corrections we've had in the IPO market, the longest ones, have been after the internet bubble burst and around the global financial crisis. When the internet bubble burst, it took about uh, three to four months before we saw any IPOs. So the IPO window could be closed for a bit of time. After the global financial crisis, we went through a period where only one IPO was priced in a six-month period. So now we're on month one. What we're looking for is the already public companies. They have very, their valuations have been significantly cut and investors are going to start looking at the already public companies that have come out and the fact that they're at lower valuations. One way to study that is to take a look at the Renaissance IPO ETF. And as that ETF starts to outperform the, bench, the overall big benchmark indices, that will set the stage for this recovery. Typically, the outperformance will be very strong when investors get confidence to come back in because right. the returns on IPOs will uh, be much better on these companies that have been cut in price so much during okay. this period. So, Kathleen, there's a lot of macro factors that are obviously impacting IPOs. Looking at your ETF, for example, your ETF down 3% since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's a number of other factors, including pretty much rapid inflation. And also what uh, Jay Powell is saying is going to be a potential, uh, not a potential, but a rate hike coming up. Um, how much is that impacting the IPO market right now? I think that the talks of the rate hike have already been factored into stocks. So between that and just how they're going to navigate, because now I think investors are looking most of all at how do we figure out what companies are worth if they're going to be impacted by this, not just rates, which impact the present value of future cash flows, but also company pricing, the cost of goods and those kinds of things, which are going to vary by company. I will say for a lot of new economy stocks, which are in the IPO index and in basically IPOs tend to be the faster growing new companies. Those will come back and those tend to do well. They can grow their revenue even with uh, an inflationary economy. So if they have strong businesses, they still will be able to come out. I heard your prior guests talk about cyber. We have a couple of uh, cyber companies. CrowdStrike is in the IPO ETF. We, we're seeing coming up those kinds of companies and probably more defensive names that will right. come out in the when the market recovers. And we're going to see a kind of different set of companies try to tap the market. And they will be very strong companies at very attractive valuations. Yeah, we have to keep our eye on the, the IPO market and also your Renaissance IPO ETF. Kathleen, thanks for joining us. All right, we're just getting started on the CNBC special. Up next, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. You know those names. But with tech under siege, could some of the sector's biggest billionaires see a dent in their pockets? Plus, why there could be trouble brewing in the venture capital space when this CNBC special, Tech Shock, returns. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And welcome back to the CNBC special tech shock. We're drilling down on the volatility in the tech sector. And, you know, it's a bit hard to feel bad for them. First-class problems, but billionaires are feeling the pinch in this year's tech wreck. And speaking of first-class, let's bring in CNBC's Robert Frank for more. We always talk about starting this podcast, frankly speaking. This might be the first segment, Robert. This is the first edition of Frankly Speaking, Frank. And, you know, you look at shareholder wealth getting wiped out in this market, billionaire wealth getting wiped out. The top 10 tech billionaires losing over $200 billion in wealth so far this year. That's the worst first quarter in recent history. The biggest loser in dollar and percentage terms, Mark Zuckerberg. He's down $50 billion, losing 40% of his entire fortune. Elon Musk close behind in dollar terms, dropping $49.5 billion. Okay, he's still the richest man in the world with $221 billion, but he's down by over $100 billion from his peak last fall. And then you've got poor Jeff Bezos. He gained a few billion back today with that stock split and dividend payment, but he's still down 25 billion for the year. His total now at a mere 164 billion. Let's take a, take a look at some other big losers. Steve Ballmer, he's down 16 billion. Larry Ellison down 12 billion. And the Alphabet guys, Larry and Sergey, down nine billion dollars each. Now some billionaires tragically have dropped out of the three comma club altogether. Rivian's R.J. Scaringe, no longer a billionaire. Robin Hood's Vlad Tenev, no longer a billionaire. He was once worth $4 billion, now worth $600 million. Frank? Robert, this is your report. It's hard to call them losers when they still have billions of dollars for the most part. But I want to ask you, um, this is mostly paper losses. Obviously, if these stocks rebound, then they get a lot of this wealth back. 
Yeah, and we cover them on the way up. You know, we covered uh, Elon Musk's wealth growing up to, you know, 243 at the top. And so we should also mention when they come down. But look, a lot of these guys took a lot of money off the table last year. Let's remember that, that the insiders took $169 billion off the table through selling stock last year. Elon Musk selling $16 billion, Jeff Bezos selling $10 billion. So it's not just they still have these big paper fortunes, but they also took a lot of cash off the table last year. A lot of shareholders, not so lucky. Yeah, first-class problems for sure. Robert Frank, appreciate that report. All right, we're just getting started. Coming up, our next guest says Amazon is giving Facebook a run for its money in terms of really bad PR. We're going to tell you why. And as we head to break, take a look at this. Almost two-thirds of the Nasdaq's 3,000-plus members have fallen by at least 25% from their 52-week highs, and 43% have lost more than half of their value. Nearly a fifth have tumbled over 75%, the worst that we've seen since the financial crisis. We're going to dig into this, and we'll be right back. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back to tonight's CNBC special tech shock, a vital piece of the tech space, the VC market. Last year, more venture funds were raised in 2021 and more startups received funding than at any other point in history. That means ever. We've got two VC insiders and friends since the 1980s joining us now to shed some light on the private markets. Roger McNamee, co-founder of Elevation Partners and Bill Tye, co-founder of Act Tye Ventures. Gentlemen, thanks for both being here. Pleasure. So you guys go way, way back. Um, so, <laughs> but Roger, I want to start off with you. Um, right now, you, you're saying that a lot of these uh, tech stocks, especially emerging tech, really benefited from the pandemic. Pandemic's certainly not over. We're still in it. But you believe it's just a little bit too risky for your taste. You feel like VCs threw a bit too much money at companies with, without defined business strategies. Uh, you cite autonomous vehicles in crypto. Um, what's yeah. changed this appetite for risk all of a sudden? Well, I, I think it's really simple. We have the disruptions to supply chains that have caused inflation to start rising, which means the Federal Reserve will almost certainly have to reassess its strategy of quantitative easing, which has been just the greatest boon in history for financial investors. I just think the country, in a world where geopolitics is riskier, where China is not as reliable partners it once was, where we have all the tension with Russia, in that environment, the U.S. is going to have to bring back a lot of manufacturing, and it's going to require investing into productive 
assets. And that's going to just divert a lot of capital away from the financial markets. And it's going to change Fed policy. And all that, I think, just makes stocks and other financial instruments less attractive than they've been for the last 10 years. Yeah, Bill, over to you. Uh, We talked about you guys knowing each other since the 80s and suits had shoulder pads, uh, you know, all types of other stuff. Also back in the 80s, 10 percent interest rates. Now we're seeing interest rates closer to about 2 percent. So why is this so troublesome? Why is inflation so troublesome when in the past the environment was seemed to be a lot more difficult? Well, if the inflation can be tamed by the Fed by raising rates, it creates competition for capital, as Roger mentioned, you know, not just for manufacturing, but other types of assets. So, you know, I think in the 80s, when I met Roger, he was running the world's largest tech mutual fund, if I'm not mistaken, at like 40 million dollars. And I was it got pitching up to, I think uh, up to 190. It got up to 190, Bill, at the peak. But you're it right. Did. It did. OK, crazy. so totally different order of magnitude than today. And, you know, the size of IPOs in that era, I think I was pitching Roger on Cirrus Logic on a $10 million placement to try to get him to buy 200K of, of that asset. You know, and I think in that era with 10 percent rates, um, you know, generally, PE multiples are kind of a function of the inverse of that, right? So if you've got a dollar of capital and you can buy a bond that's going to give you, you know, 10 cents on that dollar of, of return, uh, then stocks are a little less attractive. And we've been in this environment of sub 1% rates. So does that imply, you know, if 10 times earnings is a 10% rate environment, is a 1% 100 times? You know, we're in that kind of a zone. Now, now stocks have corrected a lot. So I think they're back into a different, you know, level where I think a lot of the excesses, some of the excesses is worked out. But look at the companies today. You know, if you you, everyone knows Microsoft is kind of a gold standard for uh, profitability and margin structure. You know, they've got a 35 percent net operating income. There's a bunch of companies like that now, you know, whether it's uh, Taiwan Semiconductor has net income margins higher than Microsoft. So does NVIDIA. Zoom is at 45% net income margin. So there are still really attractive companies out there, and this could be a good buying opportunity somewhere in this, uh, you know, chaos. You know, Bill, I'm going to stick with you for a minute. Let's continue this history lesson. How do the quality of the companies that we see nowadays compare back to the 99.com bubble? Are we seeing better quality companies? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think when, when the Internet really got, you know, when the Internet was being built out, there was a huge amount of capital put into these digital phone companies, you know, com- uh, competitive local access carriers, Celex, and different kinds of ISPs that sucked a lot of money and had no positive cash flow. And they were financed with huge amounts of debt on top of equity offerings. So that was, you know, at the foundational layer of the internet, just a disaster waiting to happen. And built on top of those, was a startup economy of companies selling eyeballs, meaning, you know, banner ads to each other. Uh, You know, so an AOL might sell a bunch of ads to eBay who had sold some to Yahoo, and they would just mark up the revenue with, you know, kind of nothing under the hood. You know, and the SaaS models today of a company like a Zoom are just infinitely better and more stable uh, than the kinds of things that we saw in the 90s. Roger, over to you. I mean, you you cite autonomous vehicles as being a bit risky for VCs to invest in, also crypto. But we're seeing the utility of crypto right now. Autonomous vehicles, they're going to be here one day. Why isn't this the time to get in? So, so Frank, I think the core point that I would make is that what Bill was just describing 
the thing that was going on in the 90s with the companies selling to each other, there is an absolutely analogous thing to that going on in the private market. Crypto has all of these people who are in a circular business model, both pyramidal and circular. And as a consequence, if something disrupts the category, it disrupts people disproportionately because they don't have other customers. And that kind of thing does exist throughout the private market because venture investors have been relatively price insensitive and they've been willing to buy into a lot of ideas. And I think um, automated vehicles, so self-driving cars are great examples where, you know, very much the way that that, uh, uh, Theranos promised something that one day will work, the idea that you could do a test from a drop of blood, but it's going to take 30 years or something to make all the steps to get there. And autonomous vehicles are like that. There will be a day when we can have autonomous vehicles. In fact, if we were willing to, to build the infrastructure to give them their own lanes and to put beacons on everything they might hit, you could probably have them tomorrow. But trying to put all the intelligence inside the car makes the risk a lot higher. And I think it postpones the days when they are safe. And I think you see that kind of behavior all over the venture market right now. And what you see in the public market is there has been no capitulation. Things are down, but retail investors are still buying. And so I think you're not going to be safe to be an aggressive buyer until people panic a lot more than they're panicking right now. All right, gentlemen, we're going to have to leave this conversation here. Roger and Bill, we thank you for your insight and thanks for being here. I would like to organize. I'd like to organize a GoFundMe with Bill to bail out all those centa billionaires whose value went down because it's pretty obvious those guys need help from consumers like us to make sure that their net worth is high. Roger, I think you feel like me. Those are first class problems. I wouldn't mind losing a couple of my billions if I still had the rest of them. Appreciate the insight, guys. We got to get going. Take care. Thank you both. Nice to see you. We're just past the bottom of the hour. Let's bring you up to speed on the latest action on Wall Street today. The Dow closing down 112 points after rallying more than 650 points yesterday. The Nasdaq Composite dropping about 1% today, dragged down by losses in Apple and Meta platforms. The futures market, that's now open. It's very thin trading at this hour, but here's an early look at that action. We've got a lot more coming your way on this CNBC special. Up next, Amazon announcing its first stock split since 1999. We're going to examine what the future holds for the rest of the FANG cohort. Stay with us. We're right back after the break. Welcome back to the CNBC special tech shock. Amazon making waves in the tech world last night. The e-commerce giant announcing a 20 for one stock split. It's first since 1999. For more on the announcement, let's bring in CNBC's Dear Drabosa. Big day for Amazon, D. Big day, Frank. And the split and the buyback, the $10 billion buyback, that could represent a subtle but a really critical shift in the leadership at one of the world's largest tech companies. New Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, he took over the reins last year. He is going to have to prove now that he can be both customer-obsessed and shareholder friendly. Now, the announcement is an effort to win over Wall Street and gain more traction with the retail investor. But this is also a somewhat unusual move for a company that for decades has really prided itself on being unapologetically focused on the customer and which has invested nearly every dollar back into the company to move beyond its e-commerce core. Now, billions have gone into building its cloud computing business, 
original content for Prime, advertising, grocery, logistics, devices. The list goes on. Amazon is constantly innovating. But now Jassy is leaving the door open to return billions of dollars to shareholders through stock repurchases. Now, a stock split itself does not create any value. Think of it as a pie. The size of it remains the exact same, but there's just more pieces. That's how a split works. But how the company framed the move was interesting. A spokesperson said that it would, quote, give employees more flexibility in how to manage their equity and make shares more accessible for people to look for people looking to invest in the company. So that is really raising the idea the CEO Andy Jassy could be responding to pressure from an underperforming stock price and what that has meant for hiring and employee retention. For example, it may be easier or more convenient for employees to sell a smaller piece of that pie rather than a large chunk. As for the buyback, Frank, $10 billion represents less than 1% of the company, and it's not even guaranteed that they will do all of it. But again, it suggests that Andy Jassy sees value at this current level and may put a greater focus on profitability and thus shareholder friendliness. Back over to you. Deirdre Bosa, we appreciate it. All right, Amazon, as we all know, is a key component of the illustrious FANG stocks made up by Meta, formerly uh, Facebook, that was the F, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Alphabet. But has FANG lost a bit of its luster? The stock's all down significantly in 2022. So what's next for the group? Let's bring in Michael Pachter and E. Gallarunian, both of Wedbush Securities, to get a full picture of those FANG stocks. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Frank. So I'm going to start, with, I'm gonna start with Netflix, if you don't mind, because uh, Michael... One of my colleagues, Scott Wapner, posted that you've been down on Netflix since they sold VHS tapes pretty much. Um, Netflix, was it a pandemic play that's kind of lost its luster in the sense that we're kind of getting back out in the world? Or does Netflix have more room to run? Well, the judge is a wise man. He's, uh, he's been a, a good friend for a long time. Um, I, my thesis has been right as far as profitability and, and valuation wrong on uh, how big they could get. They really did surprise me uh, with their international move about seven or eight years ago. And they really, really uh, shocked me that they kept competition at bay as long as they did. You know, obviously, if it's such a good business, why didn't Disney Plus start up in 2011? So, you know, holding off competition, expanding internationally, and then the key, creating content is the reason the stock's gone up so much. But the core business is just never going to grow past, you know, another 5 million households, 10 million households in the U.S. and Canada. And that's the bread and butter. Um, all their growth is coming to kind of low priced uh, areas like India. You know, they, they call that Asia Pacific, but it's really mostly India. And they're just not going to be able to charge much more than 253 bucks a month. So I don't see them ever becoming uber profitable while they're growing. I see them slowing growth and then harvesting and being profitable. That commands a lower multiple. So I've had a low target on it for a long time. I remember, you know, six months ago, somebody asked me why my target was so low. And here we are. They're at my target now. So clearly I was right for a change. It took me 10 years to be right. But I'll, <laughs> I'll run my victory lap now. Both humble and patient. Egal, going over to you. Talking about Amazon, we all know a stock split doesn't create any value. D just kind of spelled that out just now. But sometimes it can really infuse a stock. Do you see that happening with, happening with Amazon? And also, are we discounting or maybe not fully realizing the power of their logistics business that's really grown into a competitor for UPS and FedEx in its own way? Not a direct apples-to-apples -apples competitor, but certainly a rival. Sure. So... I'll, I'll have to take it back over to Michael um, to add color on, on Amazon since he's, he's the lead analyst on, on Amazon. Certainly a, a stock split um, is favorable for the retail investor, especially you know, when stocks get, get, up to, get up to four digits. 
Um, we're seeing Google make make that move as well, or Alphabet make that move as well. So it's certainly something that can be constructive um, in helping on, on the retail investor side. Um, and look, logistics and e-commerce is, is incredibly important. And you know, we're seeing that play out today more than ever with the supply chain challenges. Um, being able to control their own destiny um, is, is ultimately very, very valuable. Um, that's something we've seen play out across the competitive landscape. Shopify is getting more into fulfillment. Wayfair, it's a core central part of, of what they're doing. So uh, fulfillment and, and Amazon's efforts there um, are, are certainly a key competitive advantage, um, I think. All right, Iga, I'm going to stay with you for a second. We're going to get back to Michael in a second. But I also want to talk about Google. Um, how do you see things playing out for Google? Um, YouTube has really become a juggernaut. And ever since it broke it out in its earnings, we've really seen the growth and the power of it. And you want to talk about streaming. I, I think sometimes YouTube's overlooked as a streaming giant all on its own. Absolutely. Google's in a great spot right now. Um, YouTube is it's just one, one of those things, but you, YouTube is, is doing, uh, has done incredibly well. And, and when you think about where, where YouTube is in the kind of growth and, and evolution of TV, and Michael just talked about how, how Netflix held off competitors for so long and grew so well, YouTube is still in very early stages. We're still in a declining environment for linear television. Um, online video is still growing rapidly. We're seeing a lot of dollars shift out of that big linear TV pie um, onto onto YouTube and, and online video. Um, and, you know, YouTube's done well in both kind of the online video part. They're doing more on connected TVs right now. Um, you know, I, I I don't always tell anecdotal stories about, about my kids, but my kids don't watch linear TV. When they go onto the TV, um, 90% of the time, they're, they're going onto YouTube. Um, so we, where you think about where YouTube sits right now, um, in, in garnering ad dollars, both from, from the digital world and from the television world, um, they're in a pretty sweet spot. and They, they have a, a, a lot of room to, to run there. All right, Pac, before we go, one more question for you. Is there a best of class in these FANG names now? Is there one that you think is the standout out of all of them that has the best chance of rebounding, at least in the near term? You know, I've, I've covered them all over time. Uh, look, I, Deirdre hit, hit the split spot on that, you know, this makes it more affordable for employees. They can start pushing down shares to, to truck drivers and fulfillment center workers. But I think the bigger uh, push here is to get regular retail investors to own so that uh, legislators hear from their constituents when they start saying nasty things about Amazon. I mean, you don't hear legislators going after Microsoft and Apple, and those are widely held by retail investors. Amazon hasn't been, and I think that they're making the push primarily to put pressure on Elizabeth Warren when she starts making noise about how Amazon is anti-competitive. So I actually like them the most of, of the group. I don't cover Facebook any longer. I used to. Uh, that could be dead money for a while. Uh, Google, I agree with Egal, is an awesome company. Uh, we can leave for Dan Ives, you know, what he thinks about Apple. But but Netflix is not the one going up. Uh, of that group, I'd say Amazon's got the most upside in the near term. And if they get retail holders to start beating up on legislators and legislators leave them alone, then I think it's off to the races. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Egot, we appreciate the insight. Pac, I'm going to talk to you offline. I think that's a self-portrait behind you. I, that, I've talked to you all the time. That's never up there. I think I you just put that I up there for the special. It, it's, it's a local artist who did a painting of me. I'm promoting his work. All right, I'm going to text you about that. We're going to talk about that one. All right, we got a lot more coming up your way on the CNBC special. Check out this chart of the SMH. Semiconductor stocks are under pressure along with the broader tech cohort. So is there still opportunity to be had in this space? We'll discuss when the CNBC special 
Tech Shock continues. All right, welcome back. Just when you thought the semi-space was crunching up by supply chain challenges, war in Ukraine has added even more pressure. So what does that mean for chip companies? Here to talk about the outlook for the space is Vivek Arya of Bank of America and Raji Gill from Needham. Gentlemen, thanks for both joining us. Good to be Thank here. Thank you, Frank. So, Vivek, I'm going to start with you, Raji. I'm going to end up asking you the same question. Hard to sure. not talk about the commodity issues for chips right now. Ninety percent of the world's neon apparently comes from the Russia-Ukraine region, a key part of making chips. How does the chip sector overcome this challenge and obviously the increasing cost from this disruption from the Russian-Ukraine war? Sure, Frank. So, uh, you know, semiconductors have been climbing a wall of worry this year. There is a geopolitical conflict, uh, decelerating global growth. Um, you know, the sector was, you know, perhaps overpositioned. Uh, you know, the end of uh, last year. Uh, there is also the concern about rising capital intensity. The specific Russia-Ukraine uh, issue in terms of uh, the commodity aspect of it, I think that's actually a very small and manageable direct risk to the industry because these commodities are not used to the extent that I believe consensus uh, thinks they are. And the other issue is that uh, these uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine are not actually big sources of demand uh, for the semiconductor industry. So I think the direct issue is actually very manageable. The other issue, the other risk uh, that can come from this is if there is a slowdown in the European economy or if there are other supply chain snacks, because Ukraine does produce a number of components for the automotive uh, end market, those can be issues, indirect issues, and, and important. But I don't think the direct issue from a semiconductor perspective is that big in the near term. All right, interesting. Uh, Raji, turning over to you, I mean, he just said other supply chain issues. Supply chain issues have really been the big story, at least they were in 2021. Do you see those easing? No, the, the supply conditions are, con- are going to continue to be very tight, most likely until late 2023. Um, the capacity conditions are, are, are very, very lean. Um, most of the capacity constraints are occurring on what's called mature nodes, legacy nodes. These are 40 nanometer, 90 nanometer nodes for chips that are, for instance, IoT or Wi-Fi modules or power management. That's where we see the severe capacity constraints. And so the foundries are, are in a catch-22 situation. Folks like TSMC are going to be hesitant about building new equipment, new capacity uh, to support these nodes because they have to recognize new depreciation costs. So they're going to be very hesitant about adding capacity. At the same time, there's such strong demand for IoT modules, for Wi-Fi, for sensors, for power management, that basically uh, we're going to be in a supply-constrained environment um, for the next uh, 12, if not 24 months. And that's a positive backdrop for semis because the pricing environment is going to be very uh, strong for semis. The demand is going to outpace the supply uh, the companies are going to have very uh, strong long-term visibility, and there's very little risk of, of an overcapacity or an, or, or an overbuild. So it's, uh, it's a strong setup for semis, and, and we think the sell-off that we've been seeing is currently overdone. You know, Roger, sticking with you just for a second, you mentioned legacy nodes. Those are chips are, that go into things like manufacturing, medical devices, and things like that. Uh, a lot of talk about reshoring and a lot of talk about realigning supply chains so more production is done domestically. Doesn't that reduction in production of legacy nodes hurt that effort? Uh, possibly, but the, the building, you know, domestic semiconductor manufacturing, while it's extremely critical uh, for the U.S., it is going to take time for, for that to happen. 
I think what, what is happening is that there are foundries like Global Foundries, for instance, that just recently went public, or smaller foundries that are based um, either in the U.S. or in Japan or in other strategic um, locations that are building capacity for these for these legacy mature nodes. Um, but uh, the overall capacity uh, constrained environment is going to be challenged. And, and the need to build a domestic semiconductor uh, industry here in the U.S., um, it is very urgent. And I think uh, this recent supply chain shortage situation we're seeing now, and in turn, the, the, the price inflation, because the price inflation really can be directly tied to the shortage of, of chips, whether it's an automotive, whether it's medical devices, you mentioned, right. or, or consumer electronics. Absolutely. So it's critically important to build um, a, a domestic semiconductor industry here in the U.S., yeah, right. but that would be time. Absolutely. That's something we're going to have to continue to watch. That might be a story for the rest of 2022 going into 2023, that production. Vivek and Raji, we appreciate your time and, of course, your insight. Thanks for being here. On deck, CNBC's tech team in a roundtable wrap-up to talk about what's to come in the tech sector. And stay tuned for the news with Shepard Smith beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. We will be right back. Welcome back. The Nasdaq is down 16 percent so far this year, and it's only the beginning of March. With the Fed set to start hiking rates just next week, rising interest rates could be the big market story of 2022. But that's usually not good for high growth names. So is there hope for a tech turnaround? Let's bring in CNBC's own Christina Partzinevelis and Steve Kovac to talk about what's to come in this space. Steve, you're actually here. Christina was too cool. She didn't I, know, come. I know. She had to do it we're, from home. We're going to start with you, though. Oh! We're going to start with you. Um, I know you, you, keep, you have your eyes on Apple and everything that's going on, product um, and everything else. Yeah, so we just got off that product launch event on Tuesday with the iPhone SE, the, the budget phone, and those really expensive Macs that we saw. But let's look forward to June. This could be a really good catalyst when they announce the new Mac Pro, or we're expecting them to announce that new Mac Pro with probably the M2 chip. And by then, their transition off Intel is going to be complete. Bad look for Intel. Apple is, frankly, they're kind of embarrassing Intel with these chips and their performance in these computers. They're hot sellers, and they're really something to watch in the chip space as people are looking for ways to manage these supply chains. And and they're just doing it themselves. It's great, and it works like a dream for them. You know, speaking of chips, Christina, that's your beat right now. What are you seeing in the chip space? I know. Steve's... Steve's stealing my thunder right now because that is a major trend and it's going to be an issue for a lot of companies out there because much like Apple with the M1 uh, Ultra chip that you're mentioning, uh, you have Microsoft, Google, everybody, these big tech companies are looking to create their own chips in-house. And so you have these other companies, these chip makers like Intel scrambling to create these foundries. Previously, your guest before brought up foundries. Think of it like a manufacturing hub. And so the goal for Intel is that eventually they could have customers and clients coming to them building the chips on hand. Intel's part of this one-year turnaround, or I guess it's a turnaround that's been going on for one year with Pat, uh, the new CEO. But there's still a lot of people on Wall Street that aren't sold on this idea. I'm not talking about President Biden, because he is, right? Because Intel is going to be investing $20 billion in the world's largest chip facility. But this is a game of catch-up for Intel. You've got the underdog AMD that seems to be doing quite well just over the last little while, despite 
it gets hit with all those high growth stocks, so the stock's performance isn't the greatest. But uh, I think supply chains, as you spoke about with uh, your previous guest, I think it's a bigger issue, uh, especially when we're talking about some of these lagging uh, nodes, these nodes used, like you mentioned, Frank, in medical devices, in auto, in, in things that aren't as sexy as mobile phones. Yeah. Uh, you know. I'm going to state the obvious right here. We're all new tech reporters on the tech team. Uh, you cover Apple, Microsoft, Christina, you cover chips. I cover cybersecurity, SaaS, and the cloud. Just really quick, spoke to the Fastly CEO earlier today. He says he's seeing rising demand for cybersecurity companies wanting to shore, shore up their networks in Asia and, of course, especially in Europe, a lot of Russian threats there. Really quick, Christina, before we go, one last quick word on, on Chinese Internet stocks. What are you hearing and what are you seeing? Oh, the, the, the watch is ticking on these things because you have the SEC that is, uh, you know, listing these companies and telling them, you got to give us your audit documents. If you don't, we're going to delist you in three years from now. So there's uh, been a huge sell off within the Chinese uh, listed firms uh, just even today. And that could continue. There's a list of over 200 firms on there. Excellent stuff. Steve, by the way, you look too cool, man. You look like a real tech <laughs> I got, guy. I got the no bomber. tie, I got, no yeah. nothing else. And Christine is just too cool to be here with us. I know. Uh, okay, and the audience needs to know that it's about a 45-minute drive from the city. That's why I'm just I was saying I NASDAQ. took the drive. Yeah, that's all Steve's saying. All right, Whoa, guys, okay. thank you so much for being here. All right, Thanks. before we wrap up our Tech Shock special, let's take one more look at where the averages are right now. Legendary venture capitalist Bill Tai told us the current chaos could offer up a really good buying opportunity. If you're looking for some ideas, Wedbush's Michael Pachter thinks Amazon looks the most attractive among the FANG stocks. And that does it for us. The News with Shepard Smith picks up the coverage right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 